0: Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, this week, we're talking about the hidden barriers to building electrification. Now, study after study shows that electrifying our transportation systems and buildings are the two keys to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I think it adds up 41% for transportation, 25%. for It's like almost 70% of our greenhouse gas emissions. The rest of it is industrial processes and things like that. Now, We're making excellent progress in California with transportation, and to a limited degree elsewhere in the country. Electric vehicles are gradually replacing gas and diesel vehicles. Electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles still have some emissions, but as the mileage keeps going up, and when we convert to electric vehicles, which are powered by electricity, ideally powered by the sun and the wind, zero emissions. So in order to make this transition, we basically need to replace the entire existing fleet of cars and trucks. I mean, everything, except maybe those old classic cars that some of us have sequestered away in our garages that we can't bear to part with. Now, most cars and trucks, when you look at the statistics, they're actively used for about 10 years, before they're replaced. You know, a lot of times they're not direct, they're replaced, they're parked in a street, parked in a garage somewhere, but they're hardly any hardly used. So there's not a lot of emissions from these really old antique cars. I mean, heck, people don't want to drive them because they don't have all the electronic features, the safety features and you know, they they probably still have a cassette player in them. So, you know, people want satellite radio. So, it takes about 10 years before cars are replaced. So, if we have competitive electric vehicles now, every new vehicle was going to be an electric vehicle cars trucks buses we could replace our entire fleet of actively used vehicles in 10 to 20 years it's like really doable at least on the car basis we don't really have great electric Trucks, buses actually make a lot of sense because buses can be charged up every night, but you know, long haul trucks and and delivery trucks, we're not quite there yet. Now, when you look at the overall numbers, 25% of California's greenhouse gas emissions are coming from buildings. I think it's 41% for transportation. Now, the good news is that the studies show that electrified buildings are more cost effective than buildings that use gas for heat and, and, and other sources. So with the proper design, it's cheaper to heat and cool and operate buildings with electricity, especially electricity generated by wind and solar, zero emissions there. So specifically, here's what we need to do in our homes, in our offices, and buildings all over. First thing is we need to kind of take the low-hanging fruit of energy efficiency, making sure buildings have the, the right kind of windows, make sure that There's LEDs in place and things like that. And you can kind of do some checking based on your climate area. California actually don't even need double-glazed windows. It helps, but it's not worth doing. But most importantly, we need to replace the gas furnace, which provides the heating. It's California, but we still need heat. Replace that with a heat pump. And the heat pump also does air conditioning. And it's interesting, new heat pumps, the newest heat pumps, work great even in very cold climates. When I started working with heat pumps back in 1981, um, they couldn't really be used below freezing. They were running in electric mode. Now, I just read an article, Maine is requiring heat pumps everywhere. It gets kind of cold in Maine. So these new heat pumps can pull usable heat out of the even when it's like down close to zero degrees. The next big user of natural gas is hot water heating and that, that's easy to also replace with a, a heat pump hot water heater. When your gas heater goes. Obviously if you have an old electric hot water heater with electric coils, boom, you know, run out and put a heat pump thing in, that's gonna save you like it's gonna be three times cheaper. Okay, kind of going down the stack, replacing the gas cooking appliances or gas stove or gas oven with electric appliances. Now next replacing the gas dryer with an electric dryer, you're kind of going even further. If you have a swimming pool, you can replace that gas swimming pool heater with either solar heating or a heat pump. And then talking about what we're doing in homes and businesses, putting in electric vehicle chargers. Now, all of these changes are safer than gas appliances. There's no gas explosions. There's no dangerous fumes. Research shows that just from cooking, you're getting some bad fumes coming from that gas. And all of these changes are going to have a much lower operating cost especially if the building has rooftop solar. Now, even if you buy your electricity from the utility, you may be paying higher rates. And also, in California and many other places, if you're buying electricity from the utility, you're getting clean energy because most of the electricity is coming from wind and solar. But if you have rooftop solar on your own, heck, you're looking at 6 or $0.07 cents a kilowatt hour electricity. It's great. So with new buildings, it's relatively easy to design these electric appliances in. It's cheaper construction because you don't need to bring in gas piping, underground piping, gas meters, and you don't need to have roof penetrations for all the venting and ventilation fans. California's got great policies to achieve these new construction electrification goals in buildings. New homes are mandated to have solar, and there's a strong preference for all electric appliances, especially heat pumps. And California is making similar efforts for new commercial buildings. But what about the existing building stock? Currently, there's about 12 million single-family homes in California, 3 million apartments, and 700,000 commercial buildings. (laughs) Oh, heck, I live in a 50-year-old house, and we're fixing it up a lot, so that thing's going to be good for another 25 to 50 years at least. So it's going to take 50 to 100 years for the existing stock of buildings to change over to new buildings. It's going to take a long time. So we need to act fast to convert existing buildings into electrified buildings with no natural gas. So the good news is when you're kind of looking at at the individual appliances, it's about the same price for an electric appliance as a gas appliance. Yeah, the heat pump hot water heater is a little bit more, but operating costs are way less. That induction stove, a little bit more, a few hundred dollars more than a regular electric cooktop. And also when you're looking at other things, solar is dramatically cheaper than than it was in the past and dramatically cheaper than buying power from the utility. Battery storage prices are coming down really fast. And the manufacturers have made equipment that's really reliable. Solar panels are going to last for 25 years. These new heat pump hot water heaters are guaranteed to last you know, as long as the existing hot water heaters that we have, the tank hot water heaters. And also, there's a qualified base of contractors in the country, in California, that do HVAC heat pumps, that electricians that know how to electrify, plumbers, obviously solar contractors. So we've got the equipment, we've got the appliances. But there's two key barriers, cost and time. First, regarding time, we talked about it before. We don't have 50 to 100 years to get greenhouse gases out of our building stock. We've got like 10 years to really make a big dent in that. And second, sometimes, for certain reasons, and we're going to go into the details, the costs are kind of surprisingly high. Now, the costs can be dramatically lowered with the right policies, but in most cases, we have the wrong policies. If we stick with these existing stupid, misdirected policies that are legacies from the old way of doing things, legacies from the gas companies, it's going to take longer. So... Almost all of the high costs for electrifying existing buildings come from these public policies. So let's take a look at a few of these policies for the major building electrification impediments. These are reasons why it's hard to do. Number one, biggest one, I summarize it as the electric service upgrade problem. Let's add up all the amps you need for an all-electric house. A heat pump air conditioner heating system, 40 amps, ballpark. A heat pump hot water heater, 15 to 30 amps. Electric stove and electric oven total, maybe 60 to 70 amps. An EV charger, 40 amps. Solar, minimum. You're going to need about 40 amps for a decent-sized system. Everything else, the lighting, entertainment systems, motors, pumps, everything, add another 50. That adds up to 250 amps. Now, in a house or any building, you're never running everything at once. But clearly, 250 amps is way too much for the old-style 125 amp services, which are very common, standard, in homes built before the 70s. So in order to go all electric, you need at least a 200 amp electric service. Okay, fine. You know, that's okay. So let's say you don't have that. You have the 100 amp service and you're getting along fine with your old gas hot water heater and your old gas furnace. But when you wake up in the morning, you go downstairs into your garage and you see a puddle in front of your hot water heater. It's time to replace your hot water heater. Aha, I'm going to put in a heat pump hot water heater or your gas furnace breaks if there's smoke venting out of it. You got to replace that. Now it's time to shop for a heat pump furnace or a heat pump hot water heater right away. You can't. Wait, the dilemma is... You can't put in these heat pump systems on that old hundred amp service. You just don't have enough amps. You don't have enough juice. So you call your electrician at the same time. You want to upgrade your service from 100 amps to 200 amps. They're going to tell you, hey, all right, it's at least two months and five to ten thousand dollars. These are low numbers at, to upgrade your service if you have overhead electric wires, and at least four months and twenty to forty thousand dollars if you have underground service. Hey, it could take you two months just to get somebody to answer your phone call from the utility. The Utilities make this whole process incredibly complicated, even though they offer incentives to upgrade your service. And there's cheaper ways to get the service upgraded, because all the work doesn't need to be done by the utility. They won't always always volunteer that. You can do a lot of the work yourself, or your contractor can do a lot of the work themselves. This ends up being a public policy problem. We need to kick the utilities in the butt to make the upgrade process faster and easy. Now, it's a little perplexing to me why they don't want to do this because when a customer has a 200 amp service, guess what they're going to buy? More electricity. But they make it ridiculously difficult to do and they need to streamline it. Okay. Well, we talked about the challenges of upgrading your electric service. And the next big one is the challenges, once again, with your utility of putting in solar and battery storage systems. This is called the interconnection problem. So, interconnection is when the utility approves your use of a properly installed solar or battery installation. They don't inspect it. Your local building department inspects it. It's safe if you pick a qualified contractor. They know what they're doing. But the utility requires you to fill out, or your solar contractor, fill out a ridiculous set of paperwork procedures, and inspections. Under the best of circumstances, it takes a couple of weeks to fill out all this paperwork and wait for them to process the paperwork and kind of crunch through. And believe it or not, sometimes installations take over a year for the utilities to approve a solar or battery installation. Completely ridiculous. So, you know, I've always asked this question for the last 15 years. Why does the utility not care at all if you put in a 40-amp Air conditioner or a 40 amp electric vehicle charger. They're just, they don't even care. You don't even have to ask them. It's like, it's automatic. But they drive you crazy if you want to put in a 40 amp solar power system or a battery installation. They make you pay extra monies, often months. It's ridiculous. Now, almost every other country in the world makes its interconnection process automatic. Germany, it's automatic. Australia, it's automatic. But here in the US, You need to go on your hands and knees and beg to the utility to fill out all this paperwork in order to just turn on your solar power system. It's absolutely ridiculous. And this is something that the Solar Rights Organization is trying to resolve. And we've been trying to solve this in the country for for a dozen years. Really hard, because the utilities basically put their foot down and say, we want to approve everything. No valid reason for that. All right. Next big issue. And I'm just going to call these and summarize this as calling solar and battery hostile electric rates. So they set the electric rates so they're not friendly to businesses and homeowners who have solar or who have storage. They're unfriendly. They penalize customers. Now, not a surprise why. Just kind of look at follow the money. Let's look at the rationale. Utilities get their revenues from selling power. The more power they sell, the more revenues they make. And then the flip side of that is they get a guaranteed profit based on their total assets. Assets are power plants, electric substations, utility lines, trucks, solar installations, battery substations. In the case of pg they get a guaranteed profit of 10.5%. So when customers install their own generating system or storage system, the utility, A, doesn't get to count those as assets. So if you're putting in a $10,000 system, and if the utility were put in a $10,000 system, are you sitting down? Can you believe this? If they have a, let's just, I'm just going to pick a number. If they have a million dollar battery storage substation, they get a 10.5% rate of return on that. They get $105,000 a year extra profit for putting that thing in and if you put if 10 people or you know 1000 people put in a similar solar storage system they lose those profits so boy they fight tooth and claw to make it difficult and more expensive for homeowners and businesses to install their own solar and battery systems now another way to do this is that they set the electric rates and other charges on the bill to reduce the economic benefits from solar storage. Some things like high fixed charges. doesn't matter how much electricity you use, what you're doing with your battery. You're still always going to pay. Right now, it's like $10 a month, but they're trying to raise that. They're setting rates so that they're not friendly to net metering, so that the rates are actually lower in the middle of the day instead of higher. They're limiting your use of batteries. They don't allow you to charge your batteries from the grid when they're selling cheap grid power so you can use it at night. So, you know, when you look at all these things, these hostile electric electric and storage rates just at the end of the day make it ridiculously expensive to do the right thing which is to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions okay next issue that's here that's pretty significant electric vehicle demand charges for commercial customers now people love to drive evs to work heck you got an ev you can go in the carpool lanes great companies provide free electric vehicle chargers. I started doing that 15 years ago to Kina Solar. We also do that at Cinnamon Energy Systems. And it's okay for companies to pay for the energy to charge your employees' cars. But when companies look at their electric bills carefully, there's also something called a peak demand charge. So when everybody gets into the work at 8 or 9 in the morning, the demand charges skyrocket because that's when everybody plugs in their car. On the E19 commercial rate, it's $20 per peak kilowatt hour in any 15-minute period. So a company can easily experience over 100 kilowatts of extra load from everybody plugging in their EVs. That ends up being $2,000 extra a month. An EV draws about 3 kilowatts, 3.3 kilowatts, whatever. More Bigger ones draw more, but when you plug that charger in, you're drawing 3,000 watts. So if 33 people plug in their car all at once, the peak demand in that 15-minute interval is going to go up by 100 kilowatts. That's $2,000. It works out to about $60 extra a month that your business has to pay, that your company has to pay to give you the privilege of charging up your car because of these demand rates. And that's in addition to whatever electricity charge you, that you're encountering. So plus the demand charge, you have to add in say twenty cents a kilowatt hour for electricity. And so if you're if you're adding twenty kilowatt hours to your car, it's an extra four bucks. So companies don't really mind the four bucks, but it's a sixty dollars a month. It's just a pure penalty for allowing everybody to charge up. There are efforts underway to kind of provide commercial customers with EV friendly charging rates, and hopefully that'll work out. All right. Next impediment to electrifying our building stock, hideous incentive procedures. Most of the incentive programs, rebate programs, are administered by the utilities. Wait a minute. We have the fox guarding the hen house. California's self-generation incentive program process is a great concept for battery incentives. Last year, it was increased by about $700 million. There's a lot of money for businesses and homeowners, low-income people also, to put in solar. It's about a $2,400 rebate for a battery. That's terrific. Guess what? It takes over a year to get the rebate. The process is incredibly complicated. I've never seen a more bureaucratic process for $2,400 in my life. It's worse than the California Energy Commission rebate program 20 years ago. It takes over a year. You've got to do an energy audit. You have to do a separate interconnection process for the battery. There's a huge stack of paperwork and online forms that need to be filled out. Not all at once. This kind of trickles in over a year. Irrelevant questions that have nothing at all to do with a business or a home battery system. Zero customer service. You want to talk to somebody, forget it. Send them an email. Good luck getting an answer. Multiple inspections. This is just a battery that plugs in. It's nothing fancy. You have to send reports of the operation of your battery batteries there's delays every time you send them information it takes a month for them to respond with the next piece of paper you got to fill out and then even when it's all done they sit on the payment for months we have to get utilities out of the incentive process for for incentives that have a relationship to the revenue or profits. They're going to make it hard so that they make more profits. Oh, by the way, the utilities charge a ton of money just to administer these incompetent processes. So what we need to do in California and basically every other state is get the utilities out of the incentive program. We did that with the California Solar Initiative about a dozen years ago. That was operated independently of utilities and it worked pretty darn good. All right, kind of going along the same lines, The tax credits for solar are being reduced next year, and they're going to expire in 2022. The incentives for electric vehicles are also going away. It's critical for us to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions to make it cheaper for people. If we're not reducing those emissions fast... It could be a runaway situation for the globe. And and candidly, we're trying to stay below one and a half degrees C global warming. It's going to be really tough to do. So we need every incentive possible to encourage the transition away from polluting fossil fuels. So here, for example, the EV tax credits, the the Trump administration is trying to cancel those. Now, ironically... General Motors, the automakers, want to extend those tax breaks because they like making EVs. That's what customers want, making those EVs cheaper. I mean, they're going to sell more EVs. But there's intense lobbying with the oil and natural gas companies, which they have a lot of influence in, in the Trump administration. They're supplying the fuel. They don't want the transition to EVs. Utilities do. Car companies do. Customers do. Most of the citizens do. But the gas and the oil companies don't, and they're winning. There's also a variety of tax credits for electric service upgrades and electric appliance replacements, but the utilities don't really make these programs accessible. You can get an incentive from pg for upgrading your electric service. Almost nobody knows about it. So sometimes we have good incentive policies, but they're easily poorly implemented or they're being canceled. Now, the good news, kind of looking at all these issues, I'm complaining because I want to point out things that we can change. All of these issues are relatively straightforward to address and almost always cost effective. There's contractors and manufacturers out there that are doing their part with better equipment and speedy installations of heat pump systems, EV chargers, solar, storage, things like that. The bad news is that our policymakers are too beholden to the interests of incumbent electric utilities and fossil fuel companies, public utilities commissions, state legislators, and forget about the federal government. So we have to change that because the citizens, the clean energy people... uh, They just don't have the lobbying horsepower that the electric utilities have and the lobbying horsepower that the fossil fuel companies have. So what we need to do is focus on the biggest levers down at the customer level. We need to get the demand charge rates out of EV charging. We need to streamline electric service upgrades. And we need to simplify solar and storage permitting and interconnection. California Solar Rights Alliance is doing that, and there's something called the Solar App, which is sponsored by the Solar Foundation and C. Those are the things we need to do. Okay, that's all the time we have on this week's energy show thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in and if you missed any of today's show you can always go to our website at cinema.energy and listen to the podcast